live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Today's show is something different from what you usually get here on the Fred Opie Show. It's much longer, but worth the listen. The topic is on diversity and inclusion in lacrosse, schools, and industry. We share a topic that, according to our panelists, most white folks are scared to talk about and black and brown people regularly talk about behind closed doors. Special thanks to Matt Holman for sharing audio from his YouTube series entitled Overtime. Check it out. Matt and I were teammates and roommates at Syracuse University back in the mid-1980s. And he is the founder of the EMW Foundation, a San Diego-based nonprofit dedicated to hosting and promoting lacrosse events for a cause. Today's show is an excerpt from Overtime's episode number seven. A link to the original two-hour episode is available in our show notes. In this abridged audio edition, Matt serves as the host, introducing the panelists, which include college coaches Chaz Woodson and Amy Slade, club coach and future Hall of Famer Trevor Tierney, club coach Kevin Kelly, entrepreneur and former University of Maryland player Harry Alford, and educators Christina Snell, me, Fred Opie, and my lovely wife, Tina Opie, and Troy Kemp. This is a hot one, folks. Please share your comments on what you think about the show. We'll start with Coach Amy Slade, who was born with a stick in her hand in Garden City. Uh, her love and talent for the game took her to the, to the University of Virginia, where she earned her degree in English. She is currently the head coach of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County uh, women's team. We have Christina Snell, born in New York City, raised in northern New Jersey. Her undergrad degree in art education from King College. Master's in education with emphasis on cross-cultural education from National University. Currently an art teacher at a California Title I elementary school. They serve a large population of immigrant and refugee families. Next, we have Dr. Tina Opie, product of Alexandria, Virginia. Dr. Opie is an associate professor of management at Babson College, an award-winning researcher and teacher. She explores the connections between diversity, inclusion, and equity. She's the proud mother of two youth lacrosse players, a daughter and a son. Trevor Tierney. He's a psychology graduate of Princeton University, earned his master's in psychology through Harvard Extension. Trevor has won at all levels, NCAA, Team USA, and currently serves as the VP of LXTC Lacrosse in Denver. And they operate travel teams in the University of Denver lacrosse camps and clinics. Kevin Kelly. Kevin, Kevin grew up in Needham, Mass., just outside of Boston. Played and graduated from Providence College. He then moved west and earned his master's in organization and leadership in urban education from the University of San Francisco. Kevin is the founder of Oakland Lacrosse Club. The club uses lacrosse as a vehicle for leadership, development, academic counseling, nutrition and education, and for the youth of Oakland, California public schools. Uh, they expose over 2,000 youth annually to the game and 175 players participate in year-round programs. Professor Fred Opie, born and raised in Hudson Valley, Fred began playing across in eighth grade. He's a graduate of Herkimer Community College and Syracuse University with a degree in education. He earned his master's in history from Shippensburg University, and he has he earned his PhD in history from Syracuse. Dr. Opie has enjoyed great success on the lacrosse field 
at all of his stops, including, including Team USA, Syracuse, and his most joy comes from coaching youth lacrosse for the last 20 years. He is also so lucky to have been my roommate for a short time at Syracuse. So but let me just start by posing a topic of discussion, I'll call it. I think a lot of people talk about growing the game and increasing diversity. The question is, how do we, how do we both increase diversity racially and economically? An open question to you as the panel. Because I've been having a really great conversation with uh, my best friend in the entire wide world, Jesse Morgan, who played with me at the University of Virginia. She coached at George Mason. She's now the athletic director at um, Garrison Forest here in Baltimore. So we've been talking about, like, how do we create this environment of diversity in lacrosse and how do we grow it? Um, at UMBC, we're really um, connected to Harlem Lacrosse um, in Baltimore, and we do a lot of work with them. How do we make sure that those kids stay interested and then continue to grow interested at the high school and then college level? Um, and one thing that, you know, Jesse had brought up to me was, like, no one wants to play Howard University. And they have a team, and no one wants to play them for what reason, like, I've heard, oh, I want to, I don't want to mess up my APR. I don't want to mess up this. I don't want to mess up that. Oh, we have to go there. Sometimes they don't have enough to feel, people to field the team. And I thought that is kind of like a no brainer for us. So what we're trying to do at UMBC is create and hopefully, you know, COVID doesn't interfere in a couple of months, but create a, a game where we play Howard. Howard understands. They get it. Like we all get it at some level. If you want to be the best, you have to play against people better than you. You know, like that is just how you grow the game. That's how you grow yourselves as people and as athletes. What Jesse was saying to me is like, they just need to get games. Sometimes they don't even have enough games to put a schedule together. You know, it's not about the winning and losing at that point. It's about elevating. And so I think it would be really great for us to play, you know, a Baltimore almost city school. We're right outside the city. Um, and then a lot of girls in the Baltimore Harlem um, lacrosse community get to actually come to like a place like U.S. Lacrosse, where I would love to host the game, where they watch girls who look exactly like them playing on this grand stage. And if you guys have ever been to US Lacrosse, it's a pretty cool environment. You get these good like vibes. Um, and I could imagine that for a black girl to sit there and see other black girls playing and be like, oh damn, that could be me. Like playing at this high level um, and knowing that it's attainable and it's not just something that you do in the middle school after school, it's something that's serious. It's something that can pay your education. It's something that could you know, introduce you to new majors or, or new, realms of study that you never thought you might be interested in. I think that is like one of my goals is to really try to get Howard. I know right now they don't have a coach, but I've been trying to talk with the athletic director and Jesse's really been helping me to talk with their coach to open up this game, to have a clinic before, a clinic after, autograph signings after. So these girls sitting in the stands are like, damn, like I could be wearing that uniform playing like in this grand stage. And I don't think of like any other greater way. Like, you know, I remember watching Georgetown play in their national championship at Hopkins. I was super young. It was the first like national championship my mom brought me to. I had to come down to Baltimore. I was like, I don't want to leave Long Island. Why am I going to Baltimore? But we go and we watch and I'm like, I want to be in a national championship. And my mind was set from that day forward. So could you imagine what that would do to a young black girl? That's like, I want to be those kind. I want to be that girl playing on that stage. And so I just think that's a great environment to, to provide for them um, to look up to and be like, wow, this is really real and it's really attainable. And that's what I want. 
don't know if that's the answer, but I think that's a step in the right direction. It's something I've been thinking about doing with my MCLA college teams. I think if they were to, like anybody that comes to San Diego where I live, I could connect them with um, one of the underserved communities here and just, you know, set up the game at their home facility and do the same thing where, where the kids, you know, the college guys come out and you get, get the youth kids to come out early uh, for that throw around part before they start really warming up. And then, you know, my suggestion is like to tell the coach, have a pizza party while the teams are warming up and then they stay and watch the game and, and you have the kids interact with them after. More teams would do that. They're just kind of probably don't know which way to go with it first. And let me take a minute to just welcome back and, and introduce Coach Chaz Woodson. And Coach, congratulations on the new gig at Hampton. That's awesome. And then um, I think Harry just chimed. Yep, Harry's there. Congratulations uh, on the birth of your second child. Thank you. Um, and Kevin, you, you posed that question, I believe, but you have a good relationship with the Cal men's lacrosse team, if I'm not mistaken. You guys are close to each other or no? UC Berkeley is about 10 minutes away from, from the city of Oakland and about yeah. 20 minutes away from our hub over at Laney College. And I think that partnership has been helpful in terms of just, you know, pure numbers of having both the men's and women's team volunteer with our program. And so when we're doing outreach in the PE classes, great to have just college athletes with you. Similar to what Amy said, as we've developed from a middle school program, now we have high school players in our program. For our sixth grader to come into our program, be able to see somebody from their neighborhood playing at the high school level and going, oh, I want to be that person. And that person understands, you know, what's it like growing up in Oakland? They know the different schools. They know what it means to be down by the lake. I think building that pipeline for us is the most important thing so that, and, and ultimately what we want to create our Oakland kids coaching our Oakland kids. So we have our high school kids coach our middle school kids during the summer and really creating that community pipeline. But I would also agree that the more opportunities that they can see players that look like them playing, the stronger they can vision themselves of, hey, that's what I want to become. What can be done to help facilitate that? Chaz, you're coaching a college team now, predominantly black school. What are your thoughts on that, just from your Nation United experience, too? I do have a, a thousand things running through my head. The elephant in the room is Howard's got to put more into that program, too. It's not just about who's going to play them and when and, and get them to a certain place. Like that program needs to be more successful, especially given as long as it's been around. And we're in the same boat at Hampton. We have to put more into it. And unfortunately, we have uh, a team of people that's really willing to get behind it right now. But that's, that's a big piece of it. When we get it together, then that's going to enable us to, whether it's a, a showcase or whether it's reaching out and, and um, you know, partnering with some grassroots programs or whatever, that, that helps. But if we're not organized at the top and we're not doing what we need to do, then it doesn't work out as well. And if we don't have the players in there that make it appealing, you know, every kid wants to be successful. So if, if when they look up, the people that, they, that they're looking at or not, not seeing that success, it's not as appealing. It's not as enticing. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we've done well with Nation United. It, it's never all about winning. But with Nation United, we, we were very conscious of the fact that, yeah, th this program is going to make a splash when we first show up, but it's only going to make a splash if we're successful. And so when we rostered our team, that was way up at the top, is making sure that we had players that were top, level caliber players, you know, as examples for everybody else.
Uh, we didn't want to just put together a diverse team and say, hey, we got a, we got a team that doesn't, that doesn't help the cause. There is some stuff that, that we can do from, from the top level down at Hampton, but uh, we got to get our own ducks in a row first. Fred Opie. In relationship to Howard, one of the things I have been doing of late was interviewing women in the sport of lacrosse, coaches and players. And the thing that keeps coming up with the coaches is a lack of equity that comes out of athletic departments in terms of funding uh, women's sports. And so if Howard is going to be successful, as Chad says, the administration has to step up and make sure they have the same funding to be successful as the teams are going to compete against. What I didn't know, and I wondered when Amy was talking about um, them trying to get games, I, I wondered how much of this is the subconscious racism. I, I know from coaching my daughter how many penalties are called on her compared to her teammates. And I have uh, a, a wow. friend of mine that and for so long we would try to educate him about the structural racism, subconscious bias that happens. He never got it until he was coaching either last year or the year before. Uh, he had a team that had four African-American girls, and he was absolutely shocked of how many penalties were called on these girls and how many times these girls were fouled and nothing was called on the white girls that fouled them to the point where he went berserk. He, he, like, he went after the referees. And after that incident, he was like, I get it. guy who coaches with me and, and has seen the same thing, he said the same thing about how they call fouls on my daughter in a game, and it's, it's subconscious bias. So that, that's one thing. Now, the other thing, which I think is the elephant in every room in this discussion about how do we diversify the sport is, I don't know if – I would have the same opportunities I did in the era I came up. First of all, in the Hudson Valley, New York, lacrosse was a public school game. I mean, that's who excelled in lacrosse. If I grew up in Baltimore and some of these other schools in which lacrosse is a private school game, I don't know if I would have had the opportunity because my parents certainly didn't have the money to send me to one of these schools that excel in lacrosse. Uh, we also know, and Trevor, I would love to hear your, your take on this, as long as lacrosse continues to be a pay-to-play, that is a structural wall that prevents the diversifying of the sport economically. And whether we like it or not, there's a direct correlation in this society between wealth and skin pigmentation. And as long as that correlation continues to exist, where uh, African Americans lag behind uh, white Americans and dollars for every dollar an African American has a white person and that family has five, it makes it really difficult to play our sport because that barrier is there. So we got to end the structural barriers to playing the game. We got to deal with the subconscious bias when it, when it comes to training referees. I think that's important. And I think we got to deal with the inequity that women's sports continues to have. That's a problem. My wife had some of those. Tina Opie. What I was going to say, what's interesting is I, whenever I do this work, so I have a consulting firm and I, I also teach business, one of the things that I talk about when we're trying to, to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion is that you first have to identify the barriers to it. And there's different levels of analysis. 
many times organizations focus on individual barriers. So they'll say, mm -hmm. well, the women are not assertive enough. The women need to learn how to lean in and speak up. But what we fail to look at, and my husband sort of alluded to it, are the institutional levels. And so a few things that you, my husband mentioned, money. I would also say the network. The networks and the role models that are put out there, which is, and then I would say the exposure and the value of the sport. So when I met my husband, I had heard of, when he said he played ball and he said lacrosse, I said, you mean the native, the indigenous people sport? Like, I, I, I just knew he was talking about basketball or football. Why? Because in my network, lacrosse was not the sport that people played. We had never been exposed to that. And so I often wonder if exposure to lacrosse has, has to happen at an earlier age. So when I'm having the same conversation, for example, with law firms or professional services firms, and they're trying to figure out how to increase diversity at the partner level, they often start at the year or two before the decision is made. And I say, no, you need to dig deeper. You need to go back farther in the process because a year or two before they're ready to become partners, it's too late. And I would say to you all, a year or two before someone's supposed to go to college, it's probably too late for them to be exposed to the sport. And I know that there are organizations that focus on that. And, and what I say now may be a little bit controversial, but I actually think the organizations and the schools themselves need to, need to institutionalize these processes. Too often, I find that we, so there, Harlem Lacrosse is awesome. We love them. We, my husband has volunteered with them. But if Harlem lacrosse is the only way that you are interacting with black athletes, there's a problem. Every school needs to institutionalize these processes. You need to also not solely rely on volunteers. If we were talking about how do you increase diversity of your faculty or how do you teach people how to do math, et cetera, or coaches, you would, you would hopefully hire someone professional. You would pay them. But for some reason, the conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and inclusion is often based on volunteers, outsourcing. And I think that you have to have a fundamental paradigm shift around the value of it, because if you really value it, you will pay for it. Another thing that I'd say, the final thing is, I think we have to consider the climate of the sport. Is it hospitable or is it hostile? Because I will tell you, as a mother on the sidelines, it was very difficult as a parent. And if it wasn't for my husband, I might have pulled my daughter out of the sport because it literally felt like a hostile attack on her by other players. We have referees who are making these crazy calls, other coaches who are inquiring about her. I mean, it is, it is absolutely ridiculous. And so what that says to me is that there are institutional level issues around training. I think every coach should be fluent in diversity, equity, and inclusion. It shouldn't be a nice to have. It should be a necessity. I think it should be tied to incentive structures because you measure what matters and what matters is what you measure. And if there's no linkage to compensation, it's often difficult to change behaviors. Well said. Amy Slade. I just had this conversation with one of my teammates, Ginger Miles, who played with me at Virginia. Like, it, there needs to be more stock in it. You need to have to commit to something. It can't just be like, oh, well, I did my hour on the computer. Like, that does nothing. Like, it's not just like, oh, I posted my black square for nothing. Like, it, what does that mean? Like, just because you do it for a week, for a month, 
Like, this is not a week, a month, a day. Like, I'm just trying to look cool. I did it because my boss told me to. It's like, it's a commitment. Like, it is a heartfelt, deep commitment. And if you're not in it, if it's not directly affecting you as a person, you know, I've called some people out and I'm sure I've lost some friends and I could care less, but... You know, I've said to them, I'm like, you don't even know why you did the black school. Like, do you even know what's going on here? And they're like, oh, I just saw it. And I'm like, well, that's dumb. You now look dumb. Like, educate yourself on why you're doing these things so that you can actually make an impact and have an influence on chain. And just going to like an hour diversity inclusion thing because you're your boss and your department asked you to, to me is just like, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's and saying I did it. And if someone comes back at you to sue you, you could say you went to it, you know? Um, so I just think it needs to be deeper and it needs to be a little bit more heartfelt. We're going to take a commercial break. This is the Fred Opie show. We'll be right back. Nationwide Harlem lacrosse transforms the lives of student athletes from low income neighborhoods. Harlem Lacrosse students receive hundreds of hours of quality training on the field, in school support, and other resources year-round and for free. The result is that students improve their fitness, lacrosse skills, grades, and get on a trajectory for a successful future. To learn more and get involved, go to harlemlacrosse.org. We're back. You got two things working um, when it when it comes to the, the game changing. Troy Kemp. For those of you who don't know me, I spent time in Chattanooga, Tennessee, building a program at the Macaulay School for 27 years. And as a person that didn't grow up playing lacrosse, you know, I played football, basketball. First of all, I played the stuff that was most readily available. And basketball, a lot of us played basketball because it didn't cost anything. All you needed was a ball and, and, and some nets that would stay up for just a little while. When you talk about growing the game and having more kids be involved, you know, there's, there's not just wealth, there's a social capital piece, right? So we talked about the models and one way that I was able to sort of create momentum and energy is to, is to, is to work with the opinion leaders. See, I think of it like schools, you know, you can put all the energy and effort into the students, but if you don't put it into the teachers and the parents, it's going to get interesting. You got to operate at the C-suite level if you want to change things, right? Mm-hmm. And I still call a C-suite suite in lacrosse coaching just like minority owned businesses or whatever you want to call it, you're going to look out and find people and and try to do programs and implement things that are valuable to you. You know, as an African-American coach, I remember walking on the field with 10, 12 brothers out there, people looking at us and you're talking about officials calling it one way or another. Well, one, because the kids were great and they felt like these kids have got an advantage. So let me level the playing field. The second thing is they just felt like taking up for the underdog, whatever their bias was. But I would say this, one, the opinion leaders, I went after the football coaches and the basketball coaches because if I got them to buy in and look at this as an important sport, then I could move the needle there. But, the, but ultimately, you can get all these kids to play. But if they can't pay the price of admission for these events right now, who's out there being watched right now? Ones that are in tournaments are the ones who can pay for it, who can get on a flight, whose parents can take vacations, who can invest in the travel teams. And you might have that scholarship kid every now and then. But just like in an independent school, that kid's got to be good enough academically or something. they got to be an outlier. So you can't even be an ordinary person that might be an extraordinary person in the right way if you don't have the keys to it. And so for me, the interesting thing was, like my son played at Carolina and some other things. He was a very good football player, but he was an outstanding lacrosse player because the same skill set transferred differently, right? So ultimately, when I look at the impediments, it is all about the people calling the the shots, the people who are coaching 
and driving it. Look, your budget is a moral document in a school. Your budget is a moral document in your business. So there's no dollars invested, just like paying the coaches. Then it's not real. This is just something to talk about, not to be about. It's investing, getting the C-suite leveled out a little bit so that the people who have the ability to use their budgets and their influence and their power and their network to bring and, and engage these young people, that's not happening. It's just going to be temporary like a match. It can be hot as hell for a minute, but it's going to go out. Then I was in the admission seat, and it wasn't just looking, but people saw me from farther away now. Hey, he's a brother coaching. He's been at that school for 20 years. It's safe for my son to be there. He's going to be treated fairly on the field and in the classroom. Now they're coming. But if, if you're not safe, you're not coming. So some of these kids don't necessarily feel safe at a certain point, and then others just don't have the access because it costs a few more pesos or dollars or yen or whatever you need to get in. My work, what I do, you have to get executive buy-in. Harry Alford. And from the top, you've been talking about the C-suite. Then you have to be able to incentivize everyone, all the employees, everyone that works for you horizontally and vertically because they're going to be scared of retribution. They're going to be scared that, am I going to get dinged because I'm spending more time on diversity or inclusion? And this is not a part of my mandate. How do you evaluate me? And so they're worried about all these things. It's really important for a person in leadership to identify it, describe it, and then work towards dismantling it. And it has to come from up top because if it doesn't come from up top from a person of leadership or perceived power, then no one else is going to listen to it or buy in from the bottom up. Something that I've been doing with my brother is we've been doing implicit bias uh, presentations with a lot of college teams. We did it first with the University of Maryland, and it was really well received, and we got a lot of good feedback. And since then, we worked with several other colleges. We make it really interactive, and we do these exercises where they can put stuff in the chat. We ask them questions to really expose their privilege. And we do this from the jump. And we also start with multimedia. We throw on uh, the Matthew McConaughey uncomfortable conversation piece to get people set. And you've got to start with first principles and you've got to say, hey, this is going to be really uncomfortable. And you can tell by Matthew McConaughey, if you watch the whole thing for 20 minutes, he is in complete discomfort. In discomfort, there's a lot of growth. And then we talk about why are these uncomfortable conversations? It's because 75% of people or their social networks are of the same race and same background, same experiences. And then we, we do three questions to really expose their, uh, that they might have some conscious manner or belief. We ask them, put in the chat, what's the first thing that comes to mind when we say baseball player? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear of someone that goes to landing? What's the first thing that comes to mind, someone that goes to Martha's Vineyard? They all throw in the exact same thing. They all look at each other on this, you know, on the screen and like, holy cow, maybe we're all more alike than we think. Maybe we need to get out more and talk to other people. Are we actually hurting ourselves? Are we hurting other people unintentionally? Are we contributing to racism? That's where we start the presentation, and then we go into the historical context, what's the to today, and then we give our own personal background, and then we provide actual steps. The biggest thing with me and my brother, when we started, we moved from Indiana to D.C., went from public school to private school. First day of school, everyone had lacrosse sticks. And as soon as we picked up a stick, we never put it down. Just picking up a stick on the recess court, that was diversity. Inclusion is when, is when you stay. It was that group of people that made us feel welcome 
from that day on, we had a clique that we still talk to today. After the recession, me and my brother graduated college, we noticed that the public schools at DC did not have any of the cross teams. But we also noticed that a lot of these uh, kids that were at the private schools, they couldn't afford to be there anymore. There was an influx into the public schools of all these kids that went to middle school playing lacrosse, and all of a sudden they couldn't play anymore because it wasn't organized at the public high school. And so I reached out to the AD. We launched the first DC public high school lacrosse team, and we did it all with the equipment from all my friends in fourth grade that we met on the first day, including Jesse Hubbard, who ended up coaching me and I ended up playing with him. All the lacrosse sticks that we fielded from, for that first team at Wilson High School was from our childhood. Today, every, almost every public high school in D.C. has a lacrosse team, and they have their own league now. That's a legacy that I can hang my hat on and say that I'm really proud of. But that started because of diversity and inclusion. There's a living legacy of this happening in other places that we can repeat and scale and make it repeatable. You have to identify, you have to describe it, then you have to dismantle it. After George Floyd, I go right at people and I say, hey, you need to actually do something about it. You need to call them out, and because otherwise – you're going to have what happened at Amherst. That, that's a cultural problem. and cultural eat your strategy every day. You better believe that those instances that happened this year have been happening for years. And I wonder about every person that called me nigger on the field in middle school, high school, and college. They're all coaching now. They're influencing other assistant coaches, contributing to systemic racism that the Oakley family was talking about. We need to live in the future as well and build what's missing. What's missing is actual change to annihilate and disband the systemic system. And I think that's going to come together between partnership and collaboration and not living in isolation and in silo. Trevor Tierney. You think about the game just in general for all players. You have the pyramid, the base of it, which is all the kids that we get playing the game uh, at the rec level, at the youth level, just getting them introduced to the game for the first time. Then you kind of have... Uh, the middle level, which I'm involved with, with with club teams, and I know club teams is kind of a, a dirty word in the lacrosse world, but club teams are a lot like people. You have <laughs> you have some bad club teams out there that just roll the ball out and uh, charge a lot of money, and then you have some really good teams that work hard for their kids and prepare them not only for their future in lacrosse but uh, off the field as well. So I'm involved in that that wrong, and then then you have college coaches on, on this call. To help usher kids to that next level, there's some major hurdles around uh, costs of club teams, flights, recruiting tournaments, these type of things. Over the past uh, several years, we've developed a great relationship with uh, Denver City Lacks. They're right in our backyard here. Ben Allison and Rod Allison, they do a tremendous job doing that part that, that Harry was talking about with the diversity part, bringing them into the game for the first time and growing that that aspect of the game. What we've just done is try to support them in any way, get kids uh, in our program from a young age so when they're not playing with City Lax in the spring, we get their top players to come play with us, get them involved in our teams, and then usher them through through the high school level. Our parents in our club program, our demographic is very wealthy. They have a lot of resources. They are not afraid to throw their airline points around, help pay for kids' registration. We, we have severe challenges because we're a, a university club program, so we have NCAA guidelines that we have to follow. So other parents will help pay the kids' way in high school. 
so that they that they can still be a part of it, pay for their individual showcases, go uh, go off to school. And and last year we had, you know, I'm very proud. Although I'll never take credit for kids going and playing Division One or any college lacrosse because it's their own hard work. But Cole Finley Ponds from City Lax played for us for like five years. Went to Hopkins. August uh, Stally went to, to Richmond. Starting to develop that pipeline get the college coaches to know that we have that city lacks pipeline um, coming through our program. And then, you know, programs like uh, Chaz is starting with nations. There are some hurdles, but like I said, if you know the right tournaments to get to, you know, which coaches to get in front of them. Um, one of the upsides to COVID is I think college coaches are really learning to use video and, and use game film to watch kids play. And that is going to open so many doors. You know, I've just been filming games out here against the other good Colorado teams. If I can just get game films off the coaches and they're willing to watch and willing to recruit that way, that takes care of a lot of these issues. So I'm hoping uh, that continues forward. You know, when the George Floyd incident happened, Kevin Kelly, we partnered with a group called Our Joy, a restorative justice group that had racial healing conversations. So we did it with our parents. We did it with our high school kids. We did it with our middle school kids. You know, what became so apparent as an organization and what I'm hearing here is we just don't talk about racism a lot. And people are so uncomfortable talking about it. They're so uncomfortable making mistakes. They're so uncomfortable saying the wrong thing that we don't get the chance to talk about it. Oakland, along with being the greatest city in the United States, is also the most diverse. Our group is, you know, 30% Latino, about 30% Asian and 30% African-American. So it kind of just brings those conversations together purposely making us uncomfortable having those. Second, when I talk to people in the lacrosse world, they're imaging a pipeline of like, oh, Oakland kid, right to UVA, or Oakland kid. That may not be what the kid wants. And what we want to do in Oakland, similar to what Tina was saying before, is we want to expand the sport so that every kid in Oakland public schools gets the opportunity to play, gets the opportunity to be on a team. There just needs to be more base work at the public school level, getting kids more opportunities. Because uh, what will help diversify the game is just purely more kids playing and more people of color just around the country playing. And the way to do that is through the public school system. And so we got to put money towards that and we've got to invest in that. And that's why for us, we start at the sixth grade level. Uh, there's 12 major public schools in Oakland. We're at nine of them in terms of introducing the sport. And we're in the process of working with the district of creating a varsity girls team at every high school to support them in their Title IX. And whether or not an Oakland Lacrosse Club kid goes off to play in college isn't important. What's important is they develop all the incredible things that are inherent to sports. Positive communication, good teammate. And when we create that, eventually kids are going to go to college because they're going to love it and they're going to build their skills. But I think final point I'll make is sometimes too, I think there are assumed values that are like white upper class values that people are like are asserting on our kids. Like they want to go in this pathway. And for myself, for our Oakland lacrosse club kids, every decision we make is based on like, what does the community want? What do the kids want? And what's, what, what do they think is best? And that goes from, you know, our field is centrally located. We provide transportation. We provide all equipment. And what the kids say is the best thing that we provide, we provide food at every practice. So they know that, like, they automatically get, you know, a healthy snack when they come to us. And they're like, keep doing the food. We'll keep coming. Try one final point. Ginger Miles was our Oakland Lacrosse Board president. So love her. I think it is important beyond the good person. We have to call out systematic racism. We're working with our league right now. And second, we've got to have conversations about it. And I think my role as a white person is I've got to call it the racism every time I see it. I've got to like stand up for our kids, our coaches of color, and you know, my colleagues. Kevin, can I, I just wanted to follow up on something you said. Tina Opie. 
this is obviously offered in love. You made it, you made the comment that we don't talk about race a lot and that we're really uncomfortable talking about race. And I think it's important to label as white people who probably don't talk about race and white people who are probably yeah. uncomfortable. I may be tired of talking about race. I might not feel like discussing it today because someone was just murdered or I'm sad, but I think it's really important because what we're, what we're trying to do is surface sort of those assumptions and, the, and look at the language that we're using even when we have these conversations. It's really important that we become more accurate. And Amy, to your point, I think that's why we do have to have these labels. Because if we say, just treat everybody like a human, I agree with you. I, my husband and I were having this debate the other day. I really wish I could go out and just be. People didn't say, oh, well, you can't do that because you're a woman or because you're black. But unfortunately, we have these social constructs called race and gender. So I'm a black woman. And if we do away with those labels, how would we then be able to measure change and experiences yeah. and inequities? You ha and, and diversity, equity, and inclusion is a specific subset of behaviors that are focused on change. So if we just call them being a good person, for example, which I agree with you. I agree with you. It's ridiculous to me when people look at me and won't hire me for a job because I'm black. That's, I'm like, well, it's your fault. I mean, I have, we happen to be very proud people. I'm like, you're just missing out, dude. Your organization is not going to be awesome if you don't hire me. Without those labels, we don't have the opportunity, for example, to track medical disparities or even the conversation we're having now. You wouldn't be able to track it without those labels. So I understand what you mean. It can't just be performative. I do think that it can be insightful and instructive if we use the terms in the proper way. You just put my lacrosse coach booty right in line. Appreciate that. <laughs> Amy Slade. And hey, uh, Echo, uh, good call on my end. I uh, totally heard what you said. Christina Snell. I think white people are afraid to say something without sounding like jerks. You're saying some amazing things, and I think you've put your finger on the pulse of what many, when, when I coach executives, when I do consulting with organizations, this is a common theme. And what I say to them is, well, you're going to look like a jerk. You are going to fail. You are going to say something racist or sexist, and that is okay. Because we need to bring those conversations that are being had in privacy behind closed doors into right. the public square and learn how to have authentic public discourse. We don't know how to do that. We yell at each other, we shout at each other, we label each other, we go back to our own individual corner. You know, one thing I've noticed is that- Christina Snell. There's so many white people working so hard to prove they're not racist. When the conversations do occur, they're working so hard to show like, oh, well, I'm not a racist person, you know, everyone else is, but I'm, I'm not. Instead of just being open to hearing what's being said and learning a little bit more that day than, than you did before you had that conversation. It's hard to do, but it, it needs to be done. How do we reach out to those people who are so isolated as white people that they don't even know black people personally? How do, how do we get to them? There's already change happening right here, right? We're, we're all open to having that conversation, but how do you reach those people who have isolated themselves so much that they're, they're not having those conversations? Christina, can I jump on that one right there? I love what you just said. I just got to dive in on that one. The bridge. Troy Kemp. It's white people. The degrees of separation, I love that. You teed that up perfectly, and I hope everybody in America watches this. 
you don't have to be one degree of separation from somebody who, who looks different to understand. You got to do the work and it's got to be somebody in the middle, right? You don't have two cities connect without a bridge. And so I really do appreciate you saying that. But I will add this one thing because Fred, you, I mean, y'all about to bounce. When you learn about systems, you learn that only about 6% of organizational dysfunction is on a human level, individual level. What it means is 94% of the dysfunction is systematic. And so when you have these conversations, particularly difficult conversations, someone says, I'm not racist, I'm not whatever, but do you believe that this system is racist? We can talk about the tire or the steering wheel or the horn, who we want to blame it on, but it's the car that hits somebody. So it's the car, not just the tire. So the person might be the tire. I didn't do anything, I was on the other side of the car. It's this one that ran them over. But it's the car, which is the system. So when you, you know, I'm, I'm learning more about organization because if you want to dismantle something, you have to understand what the root cause is. So that's what a lot of this work is, root cause analysis. Where did it come from? I didn't even make this drink. I'm just drinking it. I didn't even know where it come from. But now I know where it comes from. I'm not drinking this fountain anymore. But that's my point. So it takes white people. Look, even with the civil rights movement, it didn't work without. You can do things, for example, that I can't even do because you know people that I don't even know who don't want to know me, right? <laughs> And the same thing is I can do certain things. So thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry for interrupting, but boy, the no, Lord jump no. in here right now. <laughs> I fully agree with what you're saying. So I have built a large community it's called Shared Sisterhood. It's a Facebook group. You're welcome to join it, where we're reaching out to people who may not have any black friends. That's the first thing. But the 2060-20 rule is something that there's a professor named Dolly Chuck. She's a professor at Stern School of Business. She wrote a book called Being the Person You Need to Be. It says that you can divide the population into three general categories. So you have the top 20%. Those are your friends. That's your mama and your cousins. No matter what you do, they're going to be in your corner. Okay? You don't have to influence them. They agree with you. The bottom 20% are your foes. No matter what you say, they're not going to be convinced. You're not going to influence them. What Dally Chug suggests and what I found to be very effective, I focus on that middle 60% who could go either way. And so what does that mean? I am not going up to a stranger at a taco stand because your girl might get murdered. We recognize our boundaries because if they're in the bottom 20%, I'm wasting my time, precious energy and time that could have been spent on the sick middle 60% that's going to eventually affect change. And what I say is the bottom 20% doesn't have to stay that way. It might be that I return to them and they're more, they've moved towards the 60%. That has been very helpful for me as a framework to recognize that sometimes people aren't ready. And if they're not ready, I need to focus on people who are. Mm. Fred Opie. Out of the abundance of your heart, you now speak. So if you hear stuff run out of people's mouth, they're identifying where they are. People shift over a period of time. I'm certainly not the same person I was as a junior college student. You do have to watch. My old saying, my wife will tell you, I, I never spit into a fan. There's no sense of spitting into a fan. It'll come right back on. Trevor Tierney. I, I brought this up on my first um, uh, podcast, talking about this with Fred. And I think another thing learning about race, our racism and learning about our biases is really important. And I feel like it's important for uh, white people to learn about their own culture because I feel like we're very uncultured people. And one of the issues with white is that the label of white or the label of black or the label of 
African-American or the able label of Asian-American is it flattens pe people. You know, if we just say people are Asian-Americans, you could be talking about a Korean-American, you could be talking about a Chinese-American. There's a lot of different ways. And when we talk about white people, these uh, cosplay nerds running around talking about white supremacy, I'm like, what, how, how dare you? Like, how, how do you take my color skin and, and let me into that? And I get, I get the point of those labels because they're important for us to know privileges and know where uh, things stand, like, like uh, Dr. Tino is talking about. But the, the reason I bring up the point of white people learning their own culture is that the more we remember our ancestors, we, the more we go back into remembering our own culture. First of all, the less we take from other people, we don't try to cherry pick from other people's cultures. We start to learn uh, ways to have a more cultured life, so we appreciate culture in other people. We don't we don't um, shake our head at it, or we don't look at it as different, or we don't we start to appreciate culture just just in general. And, and finally, we learn about our and an, our own ancestors' oppression. Then maybe we can start to have some sort of open heart for the oppression uh, that people of color are living through in the, in this time and place. I know my Irish ancestors weren't welcomed in to the United States when, when they first came, came over on a boat. I, I know, um, their religion back way back, uh, to the, to my, my Celtic ancestors, their religions were, were taken away by some of the same forces that are trying to control society today. So, I think the more we also learn about our own history or the more open we are in these conversations uh, with others. You were talking about your Irish ancestors. There's a great book. I think it's called How the Irish Became White because when they came here, they were actually considered lower. Immigrants were considered lower than blacks at that time. And that's a really good book I recommend. Harry Alfred. What is really preventing these kids from getting a chance and also to go on to college or However we measure success, why aren't they hitting these benchmarks and milestones? And we can use lacrosse as a vehicle to do that, but I think it takes us to look at who's really pulling the strings here and what is really going on. Where is the funding going? Which schools are getting it? Christina Snell. Harry, you talk about stepping back and, and not just looking at this as a lacrosse issue, but about kids succeeding I see that all the time because I, I teach at a Title I school. Only 10% of our, our school population identifies as being white. It's very mixed. And, I mean, our school literally has nothing. My school was built in the 1950s, and the curtains that hang on our stage are from the 1950s. The blinds in our windows in my classroom are from the 1950s. If you do step back from the lacrosse field and, and wonder why, why are these kids not succeeding more? Because they're not even getting like the most basic things. And we're part of a school district that, that has money. I have been to some of the other schools in my district that come from very wealthy neighborhoods. And I can tell you that it's not equitable because the parents in, in the public schools in, in the rich neighborhoods fundraise to pay for things out of their own pocket that their kids are not getting. They don't have old lines in the windows in those schools in the wealthy area, and they don't have old stage curtains, and they don't have beat up old desks in the classroom, and they don't have water fountains that are probably 50 years old, and they don't eat at 
lunch tables where the paint is literally peeling off them. And those are just physical things. It's not talking about even the quality of, of the books these kids get or, or how many kids are in a classroom. Our, our, our district designates that, you know, you can have 35 kids in a, in a fourth and fifth grade classroom, but in the wealthier neighborhoods in my same school district, those parents pay out of pocket. So there are no classes with over 20 students. When you're educating a classroom of 35 kids, as opposed to educating a classroom of 20 kids, there's a different education right there. That's a big problem. Tina Opie. When we allow the public school system to be funded based on zip code, based on the, the tax, the real estate taxes that people were paying, that's when we significantly contributed to the inequities in education. And so I think, Trevor, you're, you really hit up, you all have hit upon a really great point when you're talking, and, and Harry, you actually said this. So digging into the systemic issues that then, because the lacrosse inequities is an outcome of a larger system. Residential segregation, redlining, all of those things contribute to the education that our students are getting today. But we don't necessarily peel things back and address those because to your point, Troy, that's the root cause. I mean, the root cause is racism because black and white people, white people have not wanted to live where black people live and we've created legislation to support those self-interests, which Dr. Kendi talks about in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. It's excellent. That's a master's degree in African-American studies in one book. Um, God forbid people actually wise up and realize what's happening. This is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. I recently read your wonderful book, Start With Your Gift. I can't stress enough how much I wish this book was in the hands of every high school and college-age student, as well as their parents, coaches, and mentors. As a 57-year-old woman who has raised three kids to young adulthood, ages 22, 14, and 26, I too have benefited from reading it and now feel better about myself. The lines that really resonated and impacted me were the following. College degrees don't end feelings of insecurity. Hurt people hurt people. All work is honorable. Get the knowledge you need to exercise your gift and make an impact on the world around you. Your job cannot meet all financial commitments and satisfy all our needs. Lisa Kokito. Start With Your Gift is available on Amazon as an ebook, paperback, and as an audiobook. We're back. Fred Opie. When you are one of the only on the team mm-hmm. and, how, and how that makes you feel, I don't think I ever felt more lonely than when I was on that 90 U.S. national team. It wasn't because my teammates were trying to make me feel that way. Here's an experience, and I think a lot of guys in the 90 team probably never heard this story, but this is a true story. Yes, we, we get off the plane in Australia. We all have the same Trevor nose. We, we all have the same outfits on. Everywhere we go, we're in the exact same garb. We go through customs at the airport in Australia, and I'm the last one to make it through customs. I get to the team bus, and my teammates go, yo, where were you? I said, oh, I went through customs. What took you so long? I said, oh, they just throw my bags. I said, didn't they go through yours? I'm the only one in the entourage. They went through all my bags, checked everything. I'm in the same outfit of everybody else on the team, but I'm the only, 
as my mother said, the only fly in the buttermilk in that entourage. When they all heard I went through it, they said absolutely nothing. I think that might have been the beginning of that experience of feeling alone, but I really felt on that trip by myself, the epitome of our game is making that U.S. national team. And I think in my lacrosse career, that was the time I felt most alone, which is a really ironic thing, but it's true. Harry Alford. But I was on U19, and we played. We were playing at Towson, and it was 03. But the kids came from all across the country. Uh, the first call we did was – but the kid from Texas who went on to play at Ohio State, he, all of a sudden he just starts rapping, nigga, 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 like stuff like that. And I'm the only black guy there. That was one of the first times I felt paralyzed. My twin brother wasn't with me. My dad wasn't with me or anyone else that looked like me, any of my teammates that were black or had the same experiences. But I was just like, I froze. Talk about isolation. And then the whole time U19, like we won Worlds. The other goalie got hurt. I ended up playing the whole time. Like I should have been celebrating uh, going out after, right after we beat Canada. We hopped in, in my parents' car, drove back to D.C. and Baltimore. Chaz Woodson. I just heard a story last week, repeated blatant incidents of racism, a name school. It's not uncommon. I think, I, I think that's the thing. It, it's too easy to, to fall into this belief that these are isolated incidents, when in reality, if you ask around, it happens all over the place. It, it, something just happened in a game the other day. With a high school kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's routinely. Go back to Africa and go back to Wakanda. That's the incident that I'm referring to. Um, I got forwarded to me from Kyle Harrison today. Matt Holman. Messaging about that. I think that's the same one, Chaz. It is. I, I talked to that kid uh, yesterday. Yeah, man. So that's a, that's, that was last weekend at a tournament, apparently. Uh, yeah, last weekend, yeah. Troy Kemp. The thing that, that has made me go silent on people. Fred Opie. You've known me for 20 years, 30 years, and you're questioning whether it actually happened. When, when I lose it, I get real quiet. I, that's, I'm, I'm done with the conversation with you. Fred, you're going to laugh at me because this, this is a little bit of a, a what can white folk do, Mr. Douglas question. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor Tierney. Dr. Tina told me not to ask on the last last podcast. I'm curious, Fred, from your experience of feeling lonely on a team and me being a coach on teams where there's only one black player, is there something a coach or teammates could do to help be with you in, in that loneliness? What would you do if you saw one of your teammates living during the game? You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't ignore it. you halftime, or even during the game, you come up, hey, man, what's, you know, Trevor, what's wrong? What's going on? Part of the problem is kind of what my wife was saying uh, to you, Kevin, that white folks don't want to talk. A lot of times they know exactly what just went down, but they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to censor their own people. So for me, it is, if you're a coach or a teammate, you need to come. You need to come to my aid. I, I saw one of my former players from Gettysburg. I haven't seen since '89 or '90, something like that. And one of the first stories he was shared is how, when one of his teammates 
did one of the nigga nigga calls during the game, one of his white teammates. And he went after that dude with an abandon. And his coach said, you know, what's going on? What's going on? He said, you know what he called that kid? That's what should happen. If it's one of your teammates, I think it's the same thing with guys and gender. If you're a dude and you hear somebody being misogynistic, you need to call it out. If it's on your team or if it's somewhere on the other team, call it out. Come to the aid of the person. Let them know you don't tolerate that. So if you see somebody being hurt by one of these very painful words, just come to come to me the same way if I had a, a look like a torn meniscus or something. I, I love that. And I would say the other day, you have to treat it like it's COVID-19. Harry Alfred. It's not visible. You can't really see it. But you have to treat it as if, if I don't take care of it now, it could spread to someone else. If I don't feel like it's the right place to do it publicly, I'll, I'll go to them on Instagram, on Twitter, and I'll say, hey, great job speaking out, but you need to clean up, clean up your own house first. And I'll send him a screenshot of him saying something misogynistic on Twitter or, or racist. And, and I, get, I get the yes, sir, because I'm now old. And so and these are like current players, the best players with the most visibility. And so that's how I do it subtly sometimes. The, most, the thing that's happening right now, which is POL and in the patches, like 90% are wearing them and 10% aren't, but the ones that aren't wearing the Black Lives Matter patches are the ones that are standing out the most to me. Have you guys thought about that? I had a college coach from a very strong program. Troy Kemp. You know, top whatever program. Reach out to me because, you know, part of it is, you know, he really was struggling with that whole thing because he, you know, works with the PLL a lot. And he says, you know, when I got players that are on this team, he said, this player would tattoo everything on his arm about Black Lives Matter in terms of this is what I, this is what I like, but the symbol Black Lives Matter because of some things that were said in some organizations that were, it's not just Black Lives Matter, but it's Black Lives Matter mean defund the police. Does it mean this, this, that? He said, I got police officers in my family. This is what he said, one of his white players. I got police officers in my family. I got law, I got a uh, military in my family. I got guys in my family that I don't want to somehow have them construe me wearing a Black Lives Matter patch. It's his conflict, his personal conflict in his family. He said, he said, this kid's like, I know that Black Lives Matter, but I don't know what Black Lives Matter means. They're like, I know Black Lives Matter, but I don't know what BLM means. And if I'm putting that on there, then I'm accepting everything that it means. This is the conversation that I had with a coach because he was like, well, should the PLL put the patches on the shirts and give them a choice? Should they put it on the field? Should they put it here? Should they put it there so that they can own it as an organization, but personally give people the freedom to do whatever they're doing? I mean, this was a long conversation. That, that, this is a good topic right here because they just said, I'll do everything, but they stop right there. That's what you, where you ended up with the choice because they were discussing that. Right? Everybody's going to wear them or not? If everybody's doing it... Tina, Opie. Because it's been systematized. If people lose agency, what does that mean when they have it on? And I, what I want to make sure is that people have choice and that it's not co-opted by an authority figure who's telling them that they have to do this or they cannot do that. I find that to be very problematic as a leader. People don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. then I don't have authenticity. So I would rather similar things happen around our campus. You become suspect if you don't have XYZ patch or sticker on your door. My biggest problem is with white liberals. 
because you talk a lot of crap, but when, when it comes time to actually put up, possibly lose your job, you know where to be found. So I would rather you keep the sticker off your door, the patch or the shirt off, and just show up for me. And that's, that's Massachusetts for you. This is the site of the most virulent racism I have ever experienced. And I'm from the South. But this has been the place where people have gone to the police station to file a report on our then 11-year-old son based on fabrications. And thank God there were video cameras to corroborate what he said. But, I mean, I just want to give you an ex a taste for what we're dealing with. But that's everywhere. That, that's, that is everywhere in this country. And I think to the earlier points that were raised, it really is incumbent upon white people at Thanksgiving dinner, at Christmas, when, the, when Uncle Joe says those things that are racist. Look, I'm not going to get access to him, but you all have them. And it must be in your families. You probably have those relatives who you're like, oh gosh, I'm embarrassed for them to say anything. And you may want to avoid them. But if you avoid them, does that mean I have to deal with them later? I love messing with Uncle Joe at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would, Amy. <laughs> I right into Uncle Joe. Recently, in like trying to fight my, my battles, and I've been really trying to put out information on my Instagram that is valuable, that people need to see, that are facts. Trevor Tierney. I think for a lot of athletes and coaches, they're very very hesitant to even show any, any sort of politics with what they do a lot of times because we're all told to basically shut up and dribble. And I've gotten this from other, other athletes in the game as if these idiot talking heads on these cable news channels have something better to say than us. These people are idiot actors. Mm -hmm. And we sit there in front of our TVs and say, no, it's okay for them to talk about politics. But I can't say anything. I think at some point, athletes and coaches got to realize they're going to be making a, a political statement one way or the other. Politics are part of our, our lives. The IOC is one of the most political organizations in the world. They're driven by politics. Putin uses the Olympics for nothing more than to build up a, a Russian pride in his country. It's all, it's all politics. We are told that if we wear a mask, we're, a, we're, we're some sort of liberal. We're some sort of crazy liberal wearing a mask. It's like there's a pandemic going around. <laughs> I might wear a mask from now on. I, I, I'm staying healthy with a mask. Like, yeah. if you want to call me a liberal for wearing a mask, fine. Over 40% uh, of our American population is stuck in what's called socialized mind. Socialized mind is where you make meaning around your group. I'm Democrat. I'm Republican. I'm conservative, I'm liberal, whatever it is. And then you kind of consolidate everything around uh, that being. And I, and I think one of the great things about sports is that it helps usher more of a mission-driven stage of development where you start to follow your own values, your own principles. You can still be part of the group, but you have this own driving force and mission in your life that isn't restricted by the, the group itself. Kevin? Kelly. And it's funny just thinking as you're talking about politics in Oakland, the election for mayor was a Green Party versus Democrat. I, I just hope that Fred Opie, that people understand our passion. Please wake up lacrosse community. This stuff doesn't happen every once in a while. It's happening all the time. And we're bringing things to the to the sport. 
and we need to improve the sport. It is the creator sport, and we need to start treating it that way. And if we don't lower the barriers to get into the sport, if we don't change the, the culture of the sport, it's going to be business as usual. And I don't think the majority culture in the sport understands how many people are hurting while we're in the sport. I love the game of lacrosse. It's something to be in college playing with a great team and great teammates. But when practice is over, when games is over, I'm going in a different direction because my culture doesn't feel valued or respected. You want me to play the sport, but say, give up my culture to play it. That's going to be a problem. The Brown folks on this call, you all know this. Everybody tries so hard to be an insider in our sport. And some of us do it to the point of giving up our culture. And that's just not acceptable. That's not acceptable for Native American, for, for, for Latinx folks, for Asian folks. One should not have to give up their, their culture to join the sport of lacrosse. That, that's my message I would close with. I'm not from a lacrosse background, but what I say to people, if you love the sport of lacrosse. Tina Opie. Try not to get defensive about this, because if we enact the change that we've discussed on this call, your sport will get better. It will improve. You will have the best of the best. I'm going to say that if you have exclusion, you don't have the best people playing the sport. You all are athletes. You like to compete against the best. Make sure everyone has the opportunity to participate. You'll know that you're competing against the best. And the other thing is, is I would like to really encourage the educational institutions out there, the nonprofits, to think about how they can actually systematize the things that we've talked about. We have got to stop emphasizing the individual level of analysis and thinking that these players just need to try harder, get part-time jobs so they can afford it. And we have to look at the institutional level and say, what are the barriers at a systems level that are preventing people from being able to participate. You have to become about the business of winning that equation. Chaz Woodson. We can't afford to turn a blind eye. We can't afford to pretend that there's nothing going on, particularly in the sport. We can't pretend that, we, that we're not all a part of it in some way, shape or form. We all have a role to play. We all have a platform to use. And we've got to be willing to speak up on it. What you don't say says just as much as what you do say. Speak up and hold people accountable and ourselves. Harry Alford. I think there's still a lot of work left to do, but I'm still really hopeful and optimistic that we could all contribute positively to what we want the future to look like in terms of lacrosse and how people treat each other. I think it starts with these types of convenings, risk-controlled environment, where we could all just be able to feel comfortable saying whatever we're saying. It's not going to start comfortable, but I think there's different levels of growth that we could all move along. But it starts with these types of convening and then community and also the content. A lot can be accomplished. As my mom always said when I was a little kid to me and my brother, when we didn't want to go to school, she said, showing up is the hardest part. If you show up, good things could happen. Troy Kemp. Harry, you don't remember me, but you were a freshman at St. Albans. Um, I remember you because I was like, wait a minute, the black goalie, what's up? <laughs> you know, I was, you know, I was, I mean, it's just, you know how it goes.
it was fourth grade, fourth and fifth grade. I chose goalie because no one else wanted to play it. And maybe that's how Trevor started too. But, and I knew I could be on the field the whole time. I didn't know, like, I was setting a new trend or standing out by being the black goalie on the, on the field. And I love watching your son play too. And so thank you for everything that you've contributed to the game. Thanks, Trevor. Christina Snell. I just want to say thank you, Matthew, for organizing this because it, it is really important for people to come together and talk. And I think we need to have more of these, not just focused on the lacrosse community, in, in every community, just people being brave enough to get together and just talk. Thank you to all of you. Kevin Kelly. As I'm here in the Bay Area, to, to like systematically really approach it that way. And that's from like our league and putting people um, that get it and understand it, like on the, our league board, getting into referee training, like it's got to be on all levels. It's got to be with like multiple prongs of people. And it's got to get that 20% that are already converted to work on the 60%. Our kids in Oakland Lacrosse every year have just experienced racism on the field. And, and then when we bring it up to the other team, like our kids wouldn't do that in my role and white person leading this organization is relentlessly advocate for our kids and our young people and our families uh, to know that we're going to create a safe space for them in Oakland lacrosse, but that safe spaces need to be no matter what field they're going on. Amy Slade. I'm not gonna lie. This is super intimidating. When you read me the roll call, I was like, uh, don't sign me up for this. I think it's really important that kids that are of college age, listen to this and know that they have a voice and that what they say and what they do and what they say and don't do um, is also really powerful and important. When you get into your college environment, really educate yourself as to what's going on and formulate your own opinions and not your opinions based off of like either where you grew up or what someone told you. They all have a platform and I just would really like to see a lot of college kids use that platform to move the needle um, and create a more inclusive environment for, for black lacrosse players to have a home here at the sport of lacrosse. Matt Holman. I think going to places and learning different cultures, cultural awareness, you can seek out a different person just in a lunchroom setting. If somebody's limping, go over and talk to him or her. You can find people in your community that are different from you. You just have to look. First of all, I just want to say congratulations to Chaz. Trevor Tierney. Really excited for you at Hampton. If there's anything I can do to support you. I think you're going to do great, great things there. You know, one thing we didn't talk about today was we, we need more black coaches in the game. I think that that's a, a great step for the, for the game, having you down there. And I wanted to say to Harry before he got off, I got two of the greatest phrases from Harry tonight of culture, each strategy, and showing up as the hardest part. I'm going to use those as a coach all the time now. Those are in my back pocket. So thanks, Harry. Every time I do these conversations, I, I learn something new, just, just uh, like Christina was saying, from, from listening to other people, hearing different perspectives, hearing from some of the experiences like uh, Harry and Dr. Fred, Chaz shared tonight, and Troy as well. I think sometimes people want these conversations to be like groundbreaking and all of a sudden things are solved and it's like, it's just one little step at a time. And, and I, I would jump on these calls, you know, if we didn't record them, we didn't post them online. I think these type of conversations in our communities are the most important part. So um, this is our lacrosse community. This is what we all care about. 
and Amy, I've been really impressed with your passion. And, and I know uh, I've been around that college coaching world my entire life. I know, I know how hard it is to come out and be a, uh, and stand out in, in that world. And so it, it takes a lot of courage for you to do what you're doing. And like I said before, Kevin, I'm deeply appreciative of guys like you building the game from the base up. Troy Kemp. First of all, thank you all for participating. There was a point in my life where I didn't think I mattered to anybody. And now because of things that you do, you can matter to everybody. And what, what that means is the platform that you have, you got a lot of power in your platform. And that's what I love about technology because you can scale up. Everybody in the world can watch this if they really wanted to, right? We said something real tonight. We shared some things. We were vulnerable in this space. But here's what I'll say. My message is really to the coaches out there because coaches, coaches create culture. And like you said, coach eats strategy for breakfast. Absolutely. If you want to solve the problem, again, it's a root cause piece. So we got to take it up north. And I don't mean north in the country, but where the source of the water is, right? And part of this is if coaches are as intentional about creating the kind of culture and climate on their teams as, as they are in terms of running plays and creating wins and, and, and on the field, then things will be fine. At the end of the day, we got to be intentional. We have to be informed and we have to be courageous. And a great friend told me the other day, when you get to those crucibles of leadership, where you got to make a choice, where you may lose something, the stakes are high. You got to be courageous. And this is what his definition of courage was, was awesome. Courage is the control of, of fear so that one can carry out their duties no matter what happens. Mic drop. We got to be courageous. That's it. And that means the white folks talking to the white folks, the black folks talking to black folks, all that, because somebody's got to move it. And, and if the 20% don't want to listen, they're going to step aside because we're going to keep on moving because the nation is changing anyway right in front of their eyes. Remember, they're responding out of fear. And when you're scared, you're not rational. And a lot of people, when they're afraid, they're not rational. So understanding that. appreciate listening to y'all sharing things because I'm learning as well. No, I'm proud to be a part and honored to be a part of this kind of conversation. So thank you, Matt. Chaz Woodson. If you really want to show, at the end of all these, you should just take Troyism, just lines and just string them together in one show. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would, would recommend to you. If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie Show.